Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. I'm very excited about today's guest. His name is Brian Chastain, CIO and partner at CFO for Life with $1.5 billion under management. Brian, without further ado, please let us know a little bit how you got started in the business and how you got involved with markets. Well, hello, Adam, and, and again, thank you for having me and uh, uh, look forward to talking to you today and, and your audience. Um, as you said, the uh, company name is CFO for Life. We're out of the, the uh, Dallas area. And our vision from the very beginning was to have a financial planning firm that, uh, you know, back then, it's a little bit more common today, but back uh, 20 years ago when we started the firm, uh, most people had their money managed at one place, their taxes done at another place, property and cash was done at another place, so on and so forth. And our vision was to have a firm where a client could come in and have all of those things done under one roof, but be done in a manner with no proprietary products and done objectively. And that's the vision we've realized today. Uh, we do everything for our clients. If there's anything financially that they think of, we want them to think of us as the answer. We do not have a, an attorney on staff, but we have a lot of uh, attorneys that we work with. We'll bring them to the office. We'll help quarterback the estate planning process. We have an in-house uh, in, in tax shop. Uh, we do every type of insurance, and of course, we do money management. So we truly are a one-stop shop, a comprehensive financial planning firm. And, and again, that's what the vision was many years ago and what we realized today. I love it. Brian, on one of our earlier calls uh, before the show, you had mentioned to me a great line about people, a lot of people are just financially ignorant, but they're not stupid, but they're just ignorant. I mean, there's a big void in the market of just good quality financial information. Uh, a little bit later in the show, I'd like to touch on that. But before we get there, can you tell us a little bit about your investment strategy? Yes. Well, we have... Um, um, Several different portfolios. We have a uh, portfolio from, uh, uh, or I should say, portfolios from most aggressive to most conservative. We use primarily ETFs on the uh, equity side with uh, some funds. We have an alternative bucket that we use as well, and uh, we also have a stock portfolio, both uh, more dividend-oriented and growth-oriented stock portfolios for people who prefer uh, individual investments. Uh, in that way. The thing that we try to focus on most of all, though, is to get the highest risk-adjusted return that we can. And there's a lot of software and a lot of technology we use to model different portfolio portfolios to make sure that we're doing that for our clients. Oh, that's fantastic. So I know that, we, uh, that we're going to break the show down to two parts. The first part is going to be lessons for individual investors, and the second part will be lessons for financial advisors and other professional investors. So I know there's a lot to cover, so I'll, I'll just jump right into it and open the, the, uh, the floor to you. By all means, please feel free to help us, educate us, if you will, and help fill that void so uh, our listeners can, can learn a th few things from your experience. Sure. Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, I've been in the financial planning or the, uh, the advisor business for over 20 years, and I've had the, the good fortune to work with a lot of high network people all across the country. And one of the things I found that most high network people have in common is that they understand basic financial principles and they've applied them to their life. Uh, I think sadly today, most people don't understand even the most simple principles about how to build wealth. And uh, it, I think it's, a, it's, it's 
been written that two-thirds of people don't even uh, have the ability to pass the most basic financial literacy test. And what happens is that people either do nothing or they do the wrong things because they don't have the knowledge. And to illustrate this lack of knowledge in uh, uh, basic financial principles, I came across a Forbes article that was written earlier this year where they detailed some of the statistics, which I think are very scary, uh, about Americans today and what they know about money. Um, the first point that they made in the article was that 44% of Americans do not even have enough cash to cover a $400, $400 emergency. And to put that in perspective, the average medical expense today is about $1,000. Oh, wow. And, you know, we had a pretty good economy today. Right. Um, but that a strong job market's not going to last forever. Sooner or later, we're going to have another recession. Right. And you can imagine the impact for somebody that, that has $400 or less in the bank after they've lost a job. So it's it's a big issue. And I, and I think one solution there is that, uh, again, comes from education. I think this should start from as early as maybe junior high, uh, just on basic financial principles. But that's that's the first point the Forbes article made. The second one was that 43% of student loan borrowers are not making payments currently. Wow. Nearly one half wow. of Americans with student loans are, are either not making payments or have received permission to postpone payments due to economic hardship. And you have these situations where um, students today, they go out there and they spend, in some cases, six figures on the education, and they have no idea what creating that debt or taking on that debt means to them after they graduate or what the prospects of getting a job that uh, what that might pay them in relation to what they spent on that education, what that may mean. So that's, that's a, that's another big problem that we have today. Wow. That's the, 40, uh, sorry, Brian, just to make sure I understand 40%. This is a record high amount of student debt we've ever had. This is the most debt we've ever had and about 40 and percent over 40% are not even making payments. Correct. Wow. Correct. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have talked about that and said that that's the next uh, big bubble to burst. And of course, there's been a lot of talk about forgiving right. uh, student debt, but uh, I'll be I'll be surprised if that actually happens. Uh, the third point in the article was that 38 percent, again, talking about debt, 38 percent of households have credit card debt, and on average, owe just under $17,000 at an average rate of just under 16.5%. Wow. And again, you, you think about that, and if it took somebody 10 years to pay off that kind of debt at an interest rate of 16.5%, they would pay double what they owe, owe over those 10 years. So again, people getting in uh, too much debt, not understanding the impact of interest rates and what what the eventual amount they're going to be paying by taking on that much debt at that high of an interest rate. Yeah, you know, actually, um, down by you in Dallas, Mark Cuban, the famous investor, had a great line just a few months ago. He said, if you want a guaranteed 18% return, all you have to do is pay off your credit cards. <laughs> yeah. I no, thought that was that's a great line. <laughs> and that speaks to your point. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then the fourth point in the article, which to me may be the scariest of all, was that 33% of Americans have zero safe for retirement. Um, that's hard to, to believe, but uh, evidently the truth. And, and furthermore, 56% of Americans have less than 10000 saved when you combine the 33% who have nothing saved 
with the other 23% who have little saved. So you got 56% of Americans today that have $10,000 or less saved, and 33% of those have nothing saved for retirement. And that's with the stock market near all-time highs, with jobless, like your point earlier, unemployment, 50-year lows, and the economy still growing, albeit slowly, but still growing. Wow. Yes, it's, it's very scary. And, and combine that with the fact that you're seeing tensions slowly disappear today. Right. That means more and more people are going to have to shoulder their own retirement. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we've all heard the statistics about Social Security and when it runs out. So, um, you know, and I, I just think this is a lack of knowledge. You said it in the very beginning. It's not that people are stupid. They just don't have the knowledge. They've never been taught. This kind of stuff is not required in schools. Right. And so uh, uh, they don't know. And, uh, and, and and as a result, you can see the statistics that uh, bear that out that they don't know. Right. So in a way to, to, oh, I, to over. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that uh, there are some things that I think can be done to uh, uh, that should be done to to potentially uh, educate people, um, um, you know, in the future about you know uh, to, to help with some of these these problems that we're seeing in these statistics. So yeah, if you could speak to that, that was actually where I was going to go as well. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Well. Let, let me just, I, what I call this is, is uh, basics for accumulating wealth and not ending up a statistic so that you can retire in financial dignity. And, and again, when you look at these statistics, you see people retiring today primarily relying on things like Social Security, uh, really at or near poverty levels in retirement. Uh, and, and again, it, it's, there are some very basic things you can do. And the, and the first thing that I would put at the top of the list is that people need to have a plan. Um, I think this is even more important than how much you, you make. Right. Uh, without a plan, you have no idea what you need to do to have a comfortable, what you consider a comfortable retirement. Today, 46% of Americans just guess at what they are going to need in retirement. Wow. And um, you need to have a plan. You need to measure your progress against the plan. Because the plan, if you're really putting together a plan, that should be a mirror image of your goals, dreams, and aspirations. And if you're keeping up with the plan uh, and monitoring it from year to year, then you should have an idea of what you uh, need to do to be able to, to enjoy the lifestyle that you want to achieve in retirement. Right. So I, I, before you go further, Brian, just a question here to clarify for the audience. Are you saying that they, everybody – or the people should have a retirement plan or a financial plan to get there or both? Uh, I would say a financial plan to get there because uh, a, a financial plan would encompass both retirement and non-retirement accounts. And of course, both of those could figure into the lifestyle uh, that you're able to live once you get into retirement. So it's just a matter, and a, and a good financial advisor can, can do this. It's just a matter of understanding what your goals and dreams are, uh, putting together your expense. It's a tedious task, but once it's done, it's easy to keep up with. And, and just like anything else that you want to set out to achieve, you want to put it down on paper and you want to monitor it. And this is what you need to do in order to achieve the goals you have for retirement. Right. So step one, create a good financial plan to get you Correct. To, to allow you to retire with dignity. I love that line, by the way. It's so smart. Thank you. The second point I would say is to get started as early as possible. Um, 
it's incredibly important to start early and be consistent in your investing if you can do so. Uh, the difference by procrastinating is potentially the difference between a comfortable, worry-free retirement and one of depending upon Social Security for your main source of income. There, there are just a couple, when you talk about investing, there's a couple of things that are just so important. And, and again, it's, it's basic things, but most people don't know this. And time is your most precious resource. Right. You want to start as early as you can, number one. Number two, you want to be consistent. You want to be investing. I don't care if it's $25 a month. You want to be consistent in doing it on a regular basis. And then three, which is my next point, you want to get a decent rate of return. Um, most people, or I, well, I won't say most people, a lot of people, I should say, invest in short-term oriented vehicles like CDs for long-term goals. And doing that, that's a recipe for having too little in retirement savings because your money is not keeping up with inflation and taxes over the long uh, haul. So, so, um, so, Brian, let me jump in for a second. Let me just clarify that. So the three points so far is have a plan, get started as early as possible, and then you must get a decent return. So I know we spoke earlier about this in a different uh, off air in a different conversation. Can you clarify, please, for the audience, what you mean by having that decent return, getting the time horizons right, and why sometimes short-term oriented vehicles like CDs are not actually good? If in fact they might actually be counterproductive for long-term goals. Sure. Yes, a lot of people are scared of equities or the stock market, right. and uh, as a result, they think that they are being safe by investing in very conservative vehicles like CDs or money markets, and there's certainly a place for those type of investments. However, if your uh, time horizon, I always say at least five years, but preferably 10 or longer, if your time horizon is at least that kind of time frame, let's just say 10 years or longer, then you really need equity exposure. Uh, and so that's what I'm talking about with, uh, when, when I'm talking about getting a decent rate of return because equities over uh, history have returned in the neighborhood of 9 or 10% on average per year. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get that every year, right? but it means over the long run, you should approach something similar to that. And, and that is essential because, again, if you invest in long-term goals and short, with short-term vehicles, you're going to end up with your money not being worth anything when you retire. And it's really, really quite simple to see that when you do the math on it. And if you take a hypothetical thousand dollars and if you put that in a CD and let's assume just for sake of argument, you could get 2% on that today. That's $20 a year per, uh, per year in interest. If you're in a, let's say a 30% tax bracket, that would be 30% of 20 would be six. So now your real rate of return is 20 minus six or 14. Mm -hmm. And then finally, if you factor in inflation on that, and you say inflation's right around 2% today, the 2% attacks $1,000, not just the interest income. So 2% of 1,000 is 20. So you're already down to a $14 real rate of return. Subtract 20 from that, and you've got a real rate of return, a real return, I should say, of negative six. Right. And so if you do that year after year after year, you think you're being safe, but but really in reality you you are uh, you are um, creating a situation where your money is not going to be worth anything when you retire. And so it's very important when I say get a decent rate of return, you need to be able to separate your long term from your short term goals, 
And for your long-term goals, again, minimum five, preferably 10 or longer, you need equity exposure. And that, that's the only way you're going to get the type of returns that you're going to need to keep up with inflation and taxes over the long term. Understood. And that's a really good now, point, too. So people actually can lose money in CDs over the long term just because of what you just outlined. Absolutely. Understood. Absolutely. Yeah. And, of course, in the, in the equity markets, uh, you know, you're not going to get that 9 or 10% rate of return every year. That's why you want a long-term time horizon because over time – there's only been, I believe, one 10-year period in the history of the market that's ever been negative, and coincidentally, that happened in the 2000 to 2009 time frame, 2010 time frame, where we had two uh, financial crises, the dot-com uh, bust in 2000, 2001, 2002, and yep. then the, uh, the meltdown we had in uh, 08 and 09. So the longer you're in the market, the better chance you have for not only achieving a, a uh, a return, but but really a return just uh, superior to almost anything else out there. Right, that's a really good point too. You had two back-to-back -back vicious bear markets, unprecedented in a ten-year span, but otherwise every other decade has been positive on a rolling basis. So that makes sense. And if you get in, get out, you don't capture that long-term goal. So that speaks to your earlier point about being consistent. Correct, and and really you you can really see the difference in. Um, I mean, somebody might ask, well, how much different does it make to get a return, so let's say in the 8 to 10% range versus a 2% uh, rate of return? And, and I'm not going to go over with uh, go over it today, but there's something out there called the Rule of 72, which just basically says if you'll take the rate of return and divide it into 72. So, for example, uh, if your return is 8, you divide that into 72, that comes out to 9. And that tells you about how long it takes your money to double. So right. it's actually pretty accurate. When you do that, you really begin to see the power of compound interest. And I'm, I'm convinced that if, if, if people had knowledge of this and taught this to their children when they were young and their children started early, the, the, the concepts that we're talking about today, and they taught their children these concepts that within a generation, you could change your family tree financially and never have to worry about money again. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's life-changing wealth. The, um, go ahead, I'm sorry. So I was just going to say life-changing, generational-changing wealth when you understand that the, science, the science of money, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, the next point is stick to the plan. Once you develop the plan, stick to the plan. I mean, you, you, you know, it's real easy. All you have to do is look at the, the statistics of the average investor and what they get versus the different benchmarks or indexes out there, and they woefully underperform these different uh, indexes. And, and the reason is because they many times they, they're emotional investors. They do the exact wrong thing at the exact wrong time. They see something they think they might want to invest in. They see it going up, keeps going up. Finally, they get in. By the time they get in, it's near a top. It's overvalued. Uh, it starts coming down, they panic, and they end up selling right near the bottom. So they're always doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, buying high and selling low. And, and again, when you look at these statistics on what the average investor typically gets as compared to what the market actually returns, they woefully underperform in that way. And so it's very important to have somebody or to be disciplined and when you're investing, you can't be emotional. You have to understand to make time work for you, and you have to understand that volatility 
can be your friend uh, if you're investing on a regular basis. Um, and uh, knowing that your time frame is appropriate allows you to withstand the ups and downs that come in the market from time to time. No, I love that point too. And my audience knows I'm a big fan. I've got a book coming out titled Psychological Analysis for Markets, in addition to fundamental and technical analysis, the third school of thought that I developed. And the primary concept is to make very good or just smart investment decisions. And the way you do that is by making rational, not emotional decisions. So I, I, I 100% love what you're saying. And I've seen that myself. And it's a very, very true just evergreen, like it's always generation after generation, people are just emotional creatures by nature and they just make emotional decisions. They zig when they should zag and vice versa. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and they do that, of course, because the, the market can from time to time be, uh, be volatile. We've seen that recently with the increase in volatility. And, you know, we went through almost a decade with very little volatility in the market. Right. And so people were surprised when, volatility started coming back. I think a lot of people got fooled into thinking that this uh, decade that we had, well, that was a new norm and, and volatility is now gone. Well, the truth is, when you go back and you look at the market from, uh, and, and I've seen something from like 1980 to the present, the average intra-year decline in the market from, from peak to trough, from high to low in any given year, the average decline has been about 14%. Yet, in spite of that, since 1980, 29 of those 39 years have been positive. The market has ended up positive. So said another way, in any given year since 1980, you've seen the market from its high that year to its low that year decline on average 14%. And yet, by the end of the year, in 29 of those 39 years, the market ended the year up. So... Volatility, the point is volatility is actually normal. What we saw over the last decade was really abnormal, and I think you're going to continue to see volatility, and people just have to understand that volatility, in order to get superior rate of returns, volatility is one of the prices you pay for getting superior long-term rates of return. Right. And also, just because you have a volatile market down 14% in the course of a year and still ending up higher doesn't mean that it's a bad investment or it's a lousy investment. It just means you have to understand the animal or understand the behavior of the of the market or whatever the, the vehicle is you're investing in. So if you're investing in something that happens to be inherently volatile, like the stock market, expect it instead of being scared by it. Absolutely. You, you've got to do it with a long-term goal in mind. And I keep saying that, but you know, the only way you should be concerned about volatility is if you're investing in an inappropriate time frame. If you you know you wouldn't put money in the market if you're trying to uh, if you're putting money in the market that you're going to be using to buy a house in a year. Right. You might make money, but you might be down pretty big too. But those odds go way up for you when you start talking about five, ten, and 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 beyond that years of investment that, that you really start to see that long term the market is a superior place to invest. Even with the volatility, <laughs> that's, that's the whole Even point. The yeah, that's the whole point, right? Yes. So expect it. Don't be scared by it. I love it. Okay. Um, and then just a couple of other points I'll add. Um, I would say one of the things I've noticed uh, for people that get into retirement is many times they don't have the flexibility to lessen what they are withdrawing. You know, people work hard to build the assets and and then finally, it comes a time that the assets that they've worked so hard to build up, now they're going to uh, make those assets work for them. 
and and they they withdraw money, but they you know during tough times, during let's say an extended bear market or something like that, um, many times they don't have the flexibility to take less if they should in order to for their assets not to go down as quickly. And I would say, you know, whenever you're doing a financial plan, you want to build a little bit of cushion in there. And 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 if you don't have that cushion in there, you you need to have the ability to from time to time, maybe take a little bit less uh, in order to um, keep the value of the uh, the investment up, and, and again, not have it go down too quickly. People that plan, and and, and when you put together a plan, and, and, and you know, typically it involves uh, putting in inflation factors and rates of return. And you try to be very conservative, but that that's one thing. Uh, seen from time to time where people start drawing on the money and, and they don't have the ability to take any less. They're living right up against the means of whatever their income uh, from the investments are along with social security, et cetera. And, and I, just, I try to tell people that we want to build a little bit of cushion in here and just understand for the part that we've got invested in equities, there may become a, a, a period of time where it's down for maybe a year and a half, two years, maybe even three years. And during that time, of course, when you're drawing money on, uh, drawing uh, money out of your accounts that's already going down to some extent because of what's going on in the equity markets, it, it, it really can be a good thing if you have the flexibility to take a little bit less from time to time. It's almost counterproductive, if, if I understand you correctly. Yes. Yeah. You, you, can, you can hit times in the market if you're living right up against the means with no flexibility. Not only are you drawing on the account because you're using the assets to live on, but also the, the uh, balance is going down to some degree because of the uh, because of the drop in the market, and so it, it can you can go down even a lot faster than you anticipate. So I just again I just throw that out there. I just think that uh, just like in life, when you're working, you you know most people unfortunately live right up into what they make. They don't have a cent left over. Uh, it would be better, of course, if people lived on a certain amount and were able to put the rest away and save. And I think the same principle goes in retirement, too, that uh, you need to have that flexibility that if it calls for it for a period of time, you can take less and preserve the asset base uh, so that the, the assets last a little bit longer. I love that. It's a very good point. And then finally, the last point I would say is uh, you need to make adjustments to the portfolio as circumstances change and less risk is warranted. Uh, I, I do believe that for most people, uh, not all, but for most people, there's some equity exposure that, that, that most people will have uh, for the rest of their lives. Now, it may be very minimal, uh, but uh, uh, I, I think that to, to keep up with inflation and taxes, unless you just have a huge asset base and, and you don't need to take any risk whatsoever from an equity standpoint, most people have or will still need that equity exposure, again, from the very uh, first point we talked about, about keeping up with inflation and taxes over the long term. So adjustments need to be made to the portfolio from time to time. It needs to be monitored. And uh, if situations change, circumstances change, or you get to a point where you just don't need to take uh, that much risk anymore as defined by volatility, then uh, that would be another reason to make changes to the portfolio as well. That's fantastic. And Brian, we're going to come up on time for this segment for the listeners. We're going to have another bring Brian right back for the second half of the show. But just to recap here before we wrap up for this episode, there's eight lessons you've given for investors. Number one, have a plan. Number two, get started as early as possible. 
Three, get a decent rate of return. So make sure your investments are actually aligned with your long-term goals. Uh, next point is stick to the plan. Investing regularly helps make volatility work for you instead of against you, which I think is a great point. And then remember, volatility is a price you pay for getting superior long-term rates of return. Make sure you have the ability to draw income off of your investments if you need that income to be flexible with it so you can draw less when the market's in a steep bear market. And this way, it's not counterproductive. And then finally, make adjustments to the portfolio as your circumstances change and when less risk is warranted for your specific situation. Is that correct? That's correct. Good. Just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Well, thank you very much, Brian, for today's show. And everybody stay tuned. We're going to bring Brian back for another episode where he'll talk about in timeless, in, I guess, advice or, or timeless knowledge and wisdom that are applicable for financial professionals as well. And Brian, before we go, how do people get a hold of you? What's the best way for people to reach you? Well, um, yeah, uh, at our website is www.mycfoforlife.com. Uh, my email address is Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Chastain, C-H-A-S-T-A-I-N at mycfoforlife.com. That's beautiful. That's probably the two best ways. Thank you very much, Brian, and it's been a pleasure. We'll bring you back for the next episode. Stay tuned, everybody.